You're listening to the 2019 Central Texas Men's Conference. More information is available at centraltexasmc.com. Here's Ben Stewart. Again, I have no words, so we'll just... Uh... We'll just open our Bibles and pray. Uh, James chapter 1, if you want to read along with me, James chapter 1 is where we're going to be. And I apologize, I I forget his name, but the gentleman who gave his testimony earlier, I just thought that was fantastic. So thank you for sharing your story with us. Um, More he is, but I love that. It's amazing. And thank you. All right, James chapter 1, let me read this to you and we'll jump, pray and jump in. James chapter 1, starting in verse 14, says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, I want to thank you for these few minutes we have around your word together. And Lord, I feel like there's an incredible sense of potential tonight for lives to never be the same, for for a level of clarity to arrive in our life that maybe we've never had before, and for a path to open up before us of a better way of living than we've been living in the past. I think that potential's here, but I can't generate that, and we mentioned that before, God. We need your grace to let us see what it is you want us to see and feel what it is you want us to feel and then move where you want us to move, and so we want that, God. Rescue us from just doing a thing. We want to meet with you, and I want to invite you all again, if you're willing, to take a minute and you ask him that, and, and don't if you don't mean it, but if you do, just ask him. Say, Lord, please teach me tonight. And then if you would, please pray for me that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned last night I've had the honor of spending quality time with Navy SEALs. It's been one of the great honors of my life to be able to do that. And I remember one time I was invited by some of them to attend assault school uh, where they were going to do an assault training exercise where they were going to traverse a field, arrive at a building and take out a building with enemy combatants inside and rescue hostages. And it was a simulation. So they were using simunition rounds, paintballs, but they fire out of real guns. So they go fast and hard and hurt. So when we got there, my understanding was that I'd be watching this whole exercise take place from the safety of an observation deck. But when I got there, his commanding officer kind of looked at me, and as we watched the SEALs move across this field and stack up on the door of this building, he kind of motioned me. He's like, hey, come on, let's go. And so we start walking towards the door. And then all of a sudden, in a moment, he put his hand out, and he goes, you know what? I wouldn't get any closer. When they blow that door, sometimes that handle comes off like a bullet. I'd stay right about here. And I was like, yeah, we're already further than I thought I would be. So this seems fine. 
And sure enough, they blew that door and those men went running in. And as soon as they did, the CEO hit me on the chest. He goes, let's go. And we went running into the smoking door, right? And I remember as soon as I crossed through that door, two things hit me right away. Metaphorically speaking. (laughs) The first thing was the chaos of the situation. It was nuts. There was smoke everywhere. It was tight corners, flashbangs going off, screaming. It was chaos, right? But the other thing that struck me was the beauty of their strategy. I mean, they were aggressive, but graceful. They were patient, but persistent. I mean, they would stack up on an open hallway and two guys would barely give a nod and they would swing out together so they could instantly eliminate threats while never being an open target. And it took them seconds to eliminate all hostiles and rescue all hostages. And I remember standing there in that moment and all going, that was incredible. That is the Christian life. Or it should be. And you go, what do you mean by that? Well, I think wherever we are in this room, and we're all in different places on our journey of understanding God and knowing him, but the reality is you don't have to journey towards getting to know God very long before you realize the pursuit of intimacy with God happens in the context of adversity. That it's hard. It's a fight. And maybe some of you experienced that. You came here last year and got fired up. And you're like, I'm going to read my Bible every single day. Or maybe it was January. You're like, New Year's resolution. I'm going to read through my Bible. And on January 2nd, when the alarm went off, you're like, or maybe I'll just think about the Bible from right here, right? And all that falls away. Or you'll try to open up the word. And as you're reading it, all of a sudden, all kinds of distractions are going through your mind. Rival affections are coming up. And you're realizing, hey, this is difficult. A life of spirituality happens in a context of adversity or maybe you make resolutions of life you're going to change but you're like paul in romans 7 he says the good i want to do i don't do it and the evil i don't want to do i keep doing that and you feel the tension you feel the struggle and some of us in here you're discouraged by the situation you just thought it'd be easier and maybe you're like, you know, I don't know that I, what I expected, but I just, I just thought this would be a simpler thing. Like I thought I wouldn't struggle with these desires anymore. I wouldn't struggle with these thoughts. I thought I would just suddenly love everybody. And when I came to know Jesus, I'd be full of inner peace and just love people and, and just fly around my community and sprinkle Jesus dust on all of them. I just thought it'd be like that. Or maybe you come to places like this and you hear the testimony of a guy that gets up front and he was like, man, I was on drugs. I was reckless, going nowhere fast. I attended a retreat, put my faith in Jesus, and that temptation for that addiction was instantly uprooted. I have never desired it once and again, ever again. He pulled it out by the roots and it's gone. And God does that, and that's an amazing testimony. But some of you hear stories like that and you go, he uprooted your addiction? He didn't even prune mine. It's as robust as ever. And some of you look at that and you go, you know what? I don't understand that. What's going on with me? And you look at that and you go, you know what? Some of us, we're not real fired up about singing about the glory of God. We don't have a vision for our lives of making a difference in the kingdom because the reality is the low hum of a low grade guilt is in the background of our story, constantly stealing our vibrancy. Some of us, the wet blanket of persistent failure is completely quenching the fire of passion for God. And you're even sitting here going, I just, you know what, this is awesome, but I know me and I know my struggles and they're gonna be there. Maybe I'll hold out till Tuesday. But the reality is we look at our lives and go, is this the best it's gonna get? Is this the best I can hope for? Is there something wrong with me? And some of you, you're just discouraged by the situation. Others of you, that's not where you're at. 
You're like, no, I know this is hard. I know life's hard. I know I'm going to struggle. I've adapted to that. Ben, I just need a strategy. I know the situation's tough. I just need a strategy. I want to look more like the seals and less like you. They came into that struggle with a plan. You came running in in a t-shirt and flip-flops going, it's smoky in here. And that's kind of how I'm handling my problems. I need someone to give me some advice, right? And you're like, I need a strategy. And the ones I've been employing aren't really working. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight. Almost in an unemotional way, look at our life. So this isn't the pump-up speech tonight. I don't know what you thought tonight was going to be. This isn't me with my face half-painted blue going, freedom, to get you all fired up. That's not tonight. I want to pull back and not put any shame on anybody, but say, let's look at where we struggle and let's see if we can find a strategy of how to walk out of it in a good way. And so the first off, just to touch on our situation, spirituality feels difficult. It feels like a war because it is. And we need to accept the pursuit of intimacy with God happens in the context of adversity. We know that. That when God created the world, there was a negative situation in Genesis. It said the earth was formless and void. And God imposed himself on that chaos. And he put structure, but not a binding structure, a structure conducive to life. That's what God did. He built structure that allows for flourishing. And when God did that, Satan came to upend all of that, to take that beautiful structure and to completely tear it down, where that man was meant to protect and lead his wife as she supports him and they rule over animals. Satan takes an animal to deceive her, to manipulate the man. He totally turns it upside down and puts chaos into the world. That's what he does. And yet we talked about it, that Jesus came to do what? Beat back the chaos and build a kingdom. What's a kingdom? A system of structure that's not stifling, but sets us free. It's what every Western is about. When the land is lawless, people die, but he sets up a kingdom where there is peace and people can be free. That's what Jesus has done. It's the context of adversity. And we talked about it last night, that his arrival was a landed invasion. That it was presented that way in Genesis. He's coming here to crush someone. He's coming here to destroy something. And it wasn't just a landed invasion. It was a rescue operation. And he's coming to get you. You are in the dark and he is transferring you into the kingdom of the beloved son. Jesus is a warrior fighting for you. And not only that, it is now an ongoing mission. That as he's liberated you, God in his wisdom has allowed the enemy to remain. And within us, he has a sympathetic ear. The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit is what the Bible says. The war continues, right? There is a struggle within us. But C.S. Lewis said it this way. Enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. But Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise. And he is calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. That's where we are. The king has fought a victory. And yet we are meant to call into the battle, right? And beforehand, we had no tools to fight. We've been liberated, but not liberated from our struggles. We've been liberated to struggle. Do you see the difference? Some people will say that, well, man, I've got this temptation in my heart or this desire, and I was just praying he'd take that desire away, and he didn't, so maybe I'm broken or it didn't work or God's not real. And you go, no, beforehand, you were just sin's victim. You were sin's slave. You were powerless. Now you've been liberated from the power of sin. You've not been freed from your struggle. You've been freed to struggle. You're like Israel in the Old Testament. Do you remember when the Philistines were encroaching on their land and attacking them, what they did? 
It says they would show up every day in their armor, shouting the war cry. And then as soon as Goliath would come out, they were like, and they would fold like a lawn chair. They couldn't handle it. Until what happened? That little shepherd boy from Bethlehem stepped out by himself and in representative combat, I will represent you, he slayed their big enemy, Goliath. And do you remember what the Israelites did then? When they saw that humble shepherd king destroy the thing they were afraid of, what did they do? They shouted the war cry again, but then they ran after their enemies and kicked the Philistines out of their life, killing them all the way back to Gath. And that's you and me. You were powerless before your addictions and your failures and your shame. They owned you. But that little shepherd boy from Bethlehem, Jesus Christ, has destroyed your enemy. And that doesn't liberate you from the fight. That liberates you to fight. And so you now have the resources to drive the Philistines out of your own soul. He's given us that. It's an ongoing mission, and he's given us the power to fight. And so you have sin still inside of you, but it used to rule. It was like an evil dictator inside of you. But now he's been deposed. He's still evil. He's still saying crazy stuff to you. You just don't have to listen to him anymore, right? That's the power you have. You have the power now to say no. So now spirituality is now for the rest of your life till you see Jesus, one movement with two parts. That's what spirituality is. The spiritual life, once we put our faith in Jesus, is one movement with two parts. It's a movement away from something and a movement towards something. Spirituality is a movement away from ways of thinking and ways of living that isolate us from intimacy with God. And spirituality is now a movement towards ways of thinking and ways of living that promote intimacy with God. Old school theologians had a word for this path. They called it sanctification. That word sanctify is the same word in Greek as the word holy. And holy means to be set apart. And you hear these two movements even in the word. When I say something set apart, I mean set apart away from the other things and set apart unto something. It's like my wife is holy unto me. That means she is only unto me, and that means none of you losers can date her, right? Away from you, only for me. That's what holy means. That's what sanctification means, a movement away and a movement towards. And theologians had a word for each of these two parts. They called this part mortification, mortify, I kill. There are certain things that used to be true of me that now have no place in my life. And I kill those things. I murder them. They're not welcome here. And then they call this part vivification. There's other things I want to help vivify. I want to bring to life. I want to help promote their growth and see them flourish. If you were going to use a gardening illustration, this is the pulling up of weeds. And this is the planting of flowers. If you want to use a relationship one, this would be doing things that promote intimacy, like dating my wife and talking to her and listening to her feelings. This would be things like not dating other women. (laughs) Do you see it? I'm moving away from ways of thinking and living that isolate me from intimacy with God. I'm moving towards ways of thinking and living that promote intimacy with God. Now, let me be clear here. What I'm not saying is, so this is the devil's side of the stage. And this is the God's side of the stage. So you got to get on that God side, boys. That's not what I'm saying. Because what that makes it sound like is God standing over here with his arms folded waiting for you to get your crap together. And that's not the gospel. Jesus came for you while you were a sinner. And he said, I will never leave you. 
and I will never forsake you. I am always with you in the fight. But here's the reality. I know my wife will never leave me. She won't. And yet I can be standing right next to her, but feel a million miles away because I haven't done the things to promote intimacy with her. Do you see it? The relationship's solid, but I have to fight to promote the intimacy. That is the spiritual life. Do you see it? And so tonight, let's focus on this side, mortification, or what I call it is the big no. In Christianity, are there no's? Yes. And some people hear that and go, here it comes. That's Christianity. I believe in Jesus. Now I can't do anything fun anymore. Well, hey, there are things I say no to. This isn't welcome in my life, but it's to say no to free me up to a better yes. And we'll talk about some of the yeses tomorrow, but I want to talk about the no now. If you want a verse for it, Paul said it in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, love, joy, and peace, along with those who call out to God out of a pure heart. We together flee some things and pursue other things for the glory of God. Do you see it? So that's the situation. What's our strategy? What's our strategy? Well, here's the reality. This does not happen in a vacuum. This happens in a context where there is an enemy who hates your God and therefore he hates you. So I remember my first day at junior high. I was very excited about going to junior high because I was going to ride the bus to school. It's going to be very exciting. And I was going to ride the bus with my older brother who was cool, right? And so when we got there, he said, Ben, when we get on the bus, we're going to sit in the back of the bus because that's where the cool kids sit, which is very exciting. So when we got on the bus, my brother started walking towards the back of the bus because he's cool. And so I started walking to the back of the bus because I'm with him and thus by proxy, I'm also cool. But as I'm walking that way, suddenly a guy steps up right between us and puts his face like right on my face. And I didn't understand at the time. That's what some guys do when they want to bow up or fight. I just thought he had like personal space issues. I'm like, why are our noses touching? I didn't understand what he was doing. But I remember he looked at me and he was like, are you Cole Stewart's brother? I said, yeah. And he said, I hate your brother. I was like, okay. (laughs) And what I didn't understand at the time, but did later, was that this kid, Martin, was a bully just kind of tried to meet some emotional needs by picking on smaller people, right? That was his deal. But he just had one problem. He had made a decision the year before to play football. And my brother played football and was better than him. And there was a particular day at practice when Martin was playing defense and my brother was running the ball and rather than try to dodge Martin, he just ran right through him and he hit him so hard that Martin went flying through the air and made like a, like a squealing sound, like a piglet. <laughs> Which when you're a bully, kind of cramps your style. You know what I mean? So he hated my brother. So fast forward back to the bus. He's looking at me. Are you Cole Stewart's brother? Yeah. Well, I hate your brother. And then he said, so I hate you. And then he put his finger on my face and he pushed it. And he said, you'll look good with a cigarette burn right here. And as soon as he did that, my brother's voice from behind him went, Martin. He kind of straightened up. And then he sat back down, but as he did it, he said, it's going to be a long year, little brother. Now, why did he hate me? I didn't do anything to him. He doesn't know me. I'll tell you why he hates me. Because I look like the one who shamed him. You have an enemy who hates you. Why? Because you're in the image of God, son. 
you look like the one who shamed him. And the best way to get at that God is to get at you and to get you to willfully take a step away from the God who gave everything for you. That's his strategy. That's where we are. So we need to understand how he works. Let's look at how he does this temptation thing to us. Let's be like General Patton. One of the best movies ever made, Patton. Remember at that moment when he's facing off against Rommel, the terrifying general for the Germans who literally wrote the book on tank warfare? And as Rommel lines up, people wondered how will Patton do And Patton's army completely routes the Nazis under Rommel. And in that moment of victory, you're wondering, how did he do it? And there amid the triumph, Patton yells out, Rommel, I read your book. (laughs) That's a pretty good strategy. So let's read the enemy's book. How does he get at us? Well, let's look at what he knows and then look at what he does. What does he know? He knows two things. Number one, he knows your wiring. He knows your wiring. He knows that we have a mind, cognitive process. He knows you have affections, inclinations, disinclinations, likes and dislikes. And he knows you have a will, a decision-making mechanism by which you choose to do or do not do a thing. He knows you have a mind, affections, and will. You have a head, you have a heart, and you have hands and feet. He knows that about you. That's every person. And he knows your particular tendencies, He's watched the film on you. He knows you. And we all have them, even about inane things. Like if I just said these two words, romantic comedy. If I solicit that thought to your mind and your mind consults your affections, people have different responses. When I say that in front of a room full of women, romantic comedy. And those two words go into their mind and begin to solicit to their affections. Their affections may say, oh, because they think of Matthew McConaughey and they're like, I love him. Let's watch one tonight. Let's watch a million, even though it's the same plot over and over again. (laughs) Where the others of us, if those two words are solicited to our mind, romantic comedy, and it consults our affections, our affections go, oh, please, no, no. And when someone says, do you want to watch one? You say, I can't. I got to go mow the yard or lance a wound or something else. So the enemy knows your wiring and he knows your tendencies. So let's talk about what he does. Let me tell you what he wants to do. He wants to get you to sin. What does that mean? He wants you to take a willful step away from intimacy with God. That's what he wants you to do. For the, the best way to insult God is to get you to make the decision to take a willful step away from the intimacy of God. But in order to get you to do that, he has to make that look attractive. So he has to solicit thoughts to your mind to stir your affections so that you will enact the will. And when you enact the will, you sin. But the soliciting of thoughts to the mind to stir the affections. This environment is something the Bible calls temptation. Temptation. And you say, where are you getting this? From James chapter one. But each one is tempted when he is lured, that is your mind's attention, and enticed, that is your heart's affections, by his own desire. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death, the opposite of life and intimacy with God. That's the pathway. Do you see it? That's what he does. That's what we need to know. So there'll be women that they'll be getting ready in the morning and the thought will be solicited to their mind. I'm single. And as it is solicited to their mind, they think, 
That is true. I am not married, nor am I currently dating. And yet as that thought solicits to their mind and stirs their affections, they think, but I want to be married. I don't want to be alone. And then an Adele song comes on about saying hello from the outside. And we don't even know what it means, but it just begins to stir the heart. And then as they drive to school, they see couples walking hand in hand and the animals going two by two. And they're like, everyone has someone but me. And there in that moment, with thoughts solicited to their minds and affections stirred, a thought, a proposition will be made. And they'll date a loser. Some guy they know is beneath them morally. They know is not pursuing their great king. But they'll get so wrapped up, they actually believe this is the best they can do. Or some of you, the thought will be solicited to your mind. You should think about naked things. And you say, naked things? Okay. And that's about it for you. It's your own desires. This is how he's doing it. And some of the best self-knowledge you can have is how does he get at me? Because here's what the enemy knows. He knows what you think about is what you care about. And what you care about, you will chase. Let me say that again. However you conceive of spirituality, it is primarily a battle of the mind because what you think about will be what you care about and what you care about, you will chase. So what do you entertain in your mind is the question tonight. Because whatever you ponder and meditate upon will determine what you love and shape who you become. Gentlemen, where does your mind go? What do you feast on? Because what you ponder will be what you love and shape who you are. And the best self-knowledge you can have is how does he get me? Because the text says he's coming for you and he will lure you. Uses the word for lure. What is a lure? What are you trying to do with a lure? You're trying to get that fish's attention. So you put something in front of it that'll look attractive. Maybe a little frog, right? And what do you do? You'll just swim it by, maybe, maybe at an angle so it looks like wounded and delicious. What are you trying to do? You're trying to get that fish's attention. Well, hey there, little buddy. How are you? And not just its attention. You want to stir his affections. Well, look at you. And what do you want it to do? You want it to enact the will and never even see the hook. You see that? And when it enacts the will, you got him. And yet some may look at that and go, a frog? Really? Ew. Like, that's what you're into? That's what turns you on? That's disgusting. Like, if you're into that, I don't even know how you can really call yourself a fish if that's what gets you. That's gross. And the enemy will go, that's fine. We'll just get a different lure for you. Maybe something shiny. We can shake in front of you and go, ooh, shiny, right? He's watched the film on you. Each one is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's tailor-made for you. And the best self-knowledge you can have is how does he get me? Do you see it? That's what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching, Timothy. Persist in this, for in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do you hear what Paul said to young Timothy? Timothy, know what you believe and know yourself. 
Be aware, Timothy, of the doctrine of who God is and be aware of yourself, Timothy, because when you persist in this, you will save not just yourself, but all the young people who look for you for guidance. And you better believe there are young men all through our communities that are looking at you. And you persist in this to save not just yourself, but them, right? That I know how he gets me. And then what do I do? What Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 41, is watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Catch that. He doesn't say watch and pray that you don't enter into sin. Jesus looks and says, if this always leads there, then I need to be watchful and prayerful that I stay out of this. If this environment leads me to this decision, then one of the first steps I need to say is, how does he get me? What does he whisper to me? What do I believe? And what does that prompt me to do? If I don't want to do that, what is this moment where this receives its power and let me step out of that moment? Jonathan Owen said it this way, he who is not exactly skilled in the knowledge of himself will never be disentangled from one temptation or another all his days. Uselessness and scandal are the branches growing consistently of the root of unacquaintedness with our own frame and temper. Or Sun Tzu wrote in The Art of War, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. You need to know you and you need to know him. And then what do you do? You eliminate the moment. So I had a buddy that was counseling a friend of his and his friend came to him in distress. He said, what's going on? He said, my wife and I are fighting all the time. We're arguing. We've been yelling at each other and it got physical. He put hands on her. And so he told him, you don't do that as a man. You protect her. You don't use your strength to harm her. That's your wife. So he's coming strong in his buddy. But then he looks at him and says, if this is where you are, What's getting you there? What leads you to argue like that? And his friend says what everybody says. I don't know, man. I don't know. It's like, yes, you do. Think. What gets you there? He said, you know what, man? It's usually the nights we go out. We go out. There's a bar we like to go to. And we're drinking there. And she always, she doesn't rebuff the advances of these guys that flirt with her the way I want her to. And she knows it bothers me and she does it anyway. And I watch them flirt with her and I come home and I'm mad. And she's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, you know, and then suddenly it escalates and suddenly we're yelling. And my friend told him, hey, you know what, man? There's probably some deeper things under there that's prompting that. You need to get some counselors to help you unearth that. But maybe as a start, if y'all going there always leads you there, maybe y'all just for the sake of your marriage need to stop going to that bar for a little while. And as soon as he says that, he's like, but it's Tuesdays, man. It's tequila night. And you're like, I know, but it's not worth sinning over. Watch yourself. Or I'll talk to young couples, guys that are dating girls, and they want purity because the truth is if you introduce sexuality when you're trying to evaluate if you love somebody, you'll tell some girl you love her that you barely know. It's a dumb way to date to get involved sexually because you don't know if you're going to like hanging out with her, which most of marriage is just hanging out. So you hold off the sexual part, which you're pretty sure is going to be fun, so you can try to figure out is all the rest going to be fun. That's a little free tip there. So in that moment when you're dating... I'll talk to men that say, hey, you know what, man? I've been dating this girl. She's pure. She's holy. She's beautiful. And we're getting in this place where we're attracted to each other. So we keep fooling around. We keep going further than I want to sexually. I'm watching it introduce shame into her life and into mine, but we're really struggling with it. I don't know what to do. And you say, okay, man, what gets you there? I don't know, man. Yes, you do. Well, you know, 
she'll come to me and it'll be like raining. We're like, you know, let's just watch a movie at my house. And you know that little deposed dictator inside goes, yes, (laughs) movie night. Because he knows movie night always begins here. Have you seen this movie? I love it. I love all his work. These are great films. But it always ends here. And so you go, I can't handle that moment. So what do you do? You eliminate it. If this leads there, I don't go here. So what you say is, hey, you know what? Movie night's not evil. Your apartment's not evil. But if I get in that moment, I'm going to get evil. So why don't we just go to like Denny's where we can talk and I'll be much less likely to grope you, right? (laughs) When I was dating Donna, I never went into her apartment. She lived alone. I wasn't going to go in there. She's hot. So our whole courtship, she lived in a town where everything shut down at night and I would fly in from another city. The only place we could go was IHOP. We did our whole courting at IHOP. We would just sit there and I'm like, more boysenberry? Okay, all right. Tell me more about your story, right? And that's, that's how we did it, boys, right? That I find the moment. Or I'll talk to young guys that are wrestling with pornography and I'll say, where does it get you? And I got to press in on it. And they're like, you know what? It's my phone late at night in my bedroom. And I say, yeah, man, you are literally at your most vulnerable moment. You are tired and you are laying down. And in that moment, you are letting a whole world and universe of evil sit right next to your head. Do you understand how dangerous that is? You're like an alcoholic pouring a glass of scotch every night and laying it by his head going, okay, no, I'm not going to drink you. Bad strategy. So I said, if that phone is tempting you, get it out of your bedroom. Get that technology away. Have a common room in your house where you all set it down at 8 o'clock at night. And so you'll go, then what am I going to do the rest of the night? Sleep. Power down slowly and sleep. And get some rest so you'll be a good, normal, not irritable human being. And so you do that. And you, but guys will go, I don't know, man, but it's my alarm clock. Well, buy an alarm clock. <laughs> They're like $5. They practically give them away. It's not worth sitting over. And so I watch my life and I pray that I enter not into temptation. If this leads me there, I don't want to be here anymore. And some of you go, well, Ben, what if the place of temptation is my mind? I'll just have thoughts assail me in my mind while I'm driving in my car and I don't want to think them. I don't want them there. And how do I handle that moment? How do I do that? And let me tell you something. I sympathize with that. I know when I was in college, there was one semester where it was depressing, discouraging, fatalistic thoughts would just crash into my brain like a wave. And it would just throw me off. And I didn't want to think like that. I didn't want to despair. But I felt like I was getting swept under the legs every single day. And I was like, I don't know how to do this. I think I'm going crazy. And I remember one moment I was sitting in class going, I don't know how to stop this noise in my head. And I thought, it's a mental environment. How do I change the mental environment? I don't want to keep thinking about these thoughts. I need to force my mind onto some different ones. And I'm like, I don't even know what to think about. This class is boring. I'm not paying attention. And then I thought, well, maybe I should think about scripture. Do I have any memorized? And I thought, no, because I don't do that. And then I thought, wait a minute. Yes. Yeah, I do. Because when I went to Sunday school, every week in the middle of craft time, this guy at church would kick the door open. And he'd kick it because he was holding the accordion and you need both hands. So he'd just, bam. All right, kids. And he would sing the 23rd Psalm. 
So fast forward to my mid-20s, I'm sitting in class thinking I'm going mental, and I'm like, all right, man, I got the 23rd Psalm. So I start writing it in the side of my notebook. The Lord is my shepherd, shall not want, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And I start writing out the whole thing. And after a couple months, I didn't even need the polka beat anymore to remember it. But as I kept thinking about it, I thought, you know what? The Lord is my shepherd. He's watching out for me. So I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside cool waters. He restores my soul. He's going to take care of me. Right? And I began to do that, and it began to change the way I saw myself and saw the world. I need to change the environment of my mind, and some of you need to do that. See it? Some of you go, well, Ben, how do I do that? Let me say this. Well, let me say this before. Some will go, Ben, is this legalism? No, it's wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how the enemy gets you. So I have some friends that struggle with alcoholism, and they realized I don't want to go down that road, and so they trace it back. And they go, you know what? When I paddle upstream, I know if I show up at this bar, the sights, the sounds, and particularly the smells just begin to trigger thinking and life, and it makes that seem alluring, and I don't want to do it. And so I just can't, I just can't go to that bar anymore. I just can't hang with the boys in that, in that, in that zone. I, some people can. I can't. I just can't. I've had other friends that that is not a temptation for them. They can go to the bar, hang out, and that is not a temptation at all. But I remember I had one in particular. He could do that. But for him, bookstores was a problem. Just for whatever reason, there was a bookstore that he had habituated. That was a place where he would look at lustful images. And so for him, whenever he drove by or looked at that bookstore, he just knew that was a trigger set him off on this path of thinking lustfully in ways that he knew wasn't healthy. And so for some guys, spirituality means bars, but no bookstores. Others, it means bookstores, but no bars. You have to know you and you have to be honest with yourself. If this leads me there, then I'm staying away from this. Watch and pray that I may not enter into temptation. How do I get the power out of it? James tells us two things. Number one is he says, one of the ways you get out of this moment is you look downstream and see where it leads. Because the truth is he's actually not using fishing imagery. He's using sexual imagery. Uh, Greek has male and female words like Spanish and sin is a female word. What he says is each man is lured and enticed by his own desire. And when desire is conceived, she gives birth to sin. He says, desire is going to whisper sweet things to you. I will relieve you from your troubles. And when you consummate with her, when you enact the will, temptation, she has a baby called sin. And some of you say, well, I don't care about that. But sin's a female word too. And it says, since sin she brings forth, pregnancy word again, she brings forth death. And he said, he takes the most beautiful image, the bringing of forth of a life of a child, and he says, but you give birth to death. Why does James say that? Why does he say such a horrible thing? It's to shock you. Because in this moment, it'll look attractive. How many men have committed adultery? How many of you, if we were taking a quiz, and I said, is adultery a good idea? I think we would all say false. 
And yet you get in a moment where suddenly that feels like a good idea. She understands me. She knows me. She cares about me the way they don't. And it looks attractive. What do you have to do? That mindset will be whispering. You have to force the veil down and say, if I take this step, where's it going to lead? And do I want to be there? I remember I had a pastor friend that in his prayer closet, there were all kinds of newspaper clippings of pastors who had had moral failure, which happens all the time. And you say, man, what an upbeat prayer closet. Why would he do that? Because he knew there would be women who would come to him and say, that was such a great message. You're so awesome. You're so much better than my husband. And they will say things like that at times. Not all women, but some. And he said, and that'll feel good. And the enemy will begin to lodge that into my heart. And he said, and it just helps me when I go into this room to pray. And I saw right at eye level as he walked out of the door was a photograph of a pastor as the news vans were running up to him and they were sticking microphones in the face of he and his wife as they're getting in his car because he's about to lose his church because of his adultery. And he had circled the wife's face and he said, look at her eyes. That's what he wrote in the corner. Look at her eyes. Because she looked hollowed out. And I'm like, why would you do that? Because he knew... Sin doesn't look sexy in the cold light of day. She's going to look great here. So fight to see where it leads. If I entertain this, where will it take me? Do I want to be there? No, I do not. And so I fight the battle here. I fight it up here at first impulse. Do you see it? I had a young man come to my office one time. I was leaving my office, and he came running up holding a computer. He said, I need you to take this. And I don't know about you, but when a young man runs up and says, here, take this computer, I'm like, whoa, 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 man, I can't get involved in whatever you're doing, you know? <laughs> and he's like, it's my computer. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I just need you to take it. And I was like, I don't understand what's happening. And he said, I live with my parents. They're going away for the weekend. And I know that I will spend all weekend living in pornography. And I know what it does to my sense of confidence and the way I treat people and the way I think about myself. I know what kind of person it makes me and I don't want to be this guy. And so rather than just trying to fight the temptation, fight the temptation while they're gone, he just paddled back and said, you know what? I just need you to take this now. And so I took his computer and it was like I watched the weight come off his shoulders. He's free. He's free. And some of you, that'll be the best thing you do this weekend is to find some godly brothers who will stand with you. Temptation comes after all of us. Can you see it? He's coming for you. Can you identify it and say, he's trying to get me there, and it always starts here. So brothers, help me step out of that. So you paddle downstream. See where it goes, and do I want to be there? And then the last thing I'll say is then you paddle upstream. Because the reality is temptation gets its power from something. Where does the power come from? The power of temptation usually comes from a lie. And you go, what's the lie? Well, James will tell you, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. That's the next verse. But it's interesting. He doesn't point downstream. He doesn't say, don't be deceived. Porn's going to ruin your life. Don't be deceived. Alcoholism is a bad choice. Don't be deceived. Giving vent to your anger will feel righteous, but it'll end up hurting everyone you love. He doesn't say that. He doesn't point downstream. He says, don't be deceived. Deception leads to sin. This is Genesis 3, garden stuff. But he doesn't point downstream. What does he say? Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from your father from whom there is no variation or shifting due to change. Do you see what James just did? He points upstream. He says the lie that launches a million sins is the lie that God is not a good father. Think about it. 
Why do you work 90 hours a week so I can be a success? In whose eyes? In the world's eyes. Why? So that they'll say I'm valuable. Why? So that I'll feel valuable. Why? So I'll feel like I'm worth something, that I'm worthy of love. That's why you do it. That's why you put your family on the altar of your business. Do you see what's happening there? Because I don't think I'm really loved. I don't believe John 3.16. Or I'll take my sexuality this way. Why? Because I believe if I follow God's sexual ethic, it'll rob me from really a fulfilling life. So I have to get away from him to really live. Do you hear that? The basis of the deception is God's holding out on you. Where did that come from? Genesis 3. The lie that launches a million sins is that God is not a good dad who cares about you. That's the lie. And you've got to fight it there. I remember for me, I don't know if I can share this here. I just will. Uh, I hated the song, How He Loves. Can I say that? I don't know if you know that song. And I wrestled with that. I don't know if that hurts your worship leader's feelings. I just, I hated the song. And, um, but it bothered me. I was like, why do I hate this song? And I was like, is it the way we sing it? Kind of the Doppler effect way? How he loves. I was like, is it that? Like, no, it's not that. I was like, is it the lyrics? I'm like, I'm not a tree. (laughs) And then I thought, you know what? It's not that. There's nothing wrong with the music and there's nothing wrong with the words. Then I thought, then why do I always have an aversion to the song? And you know why? Because I didn't believe it. Because these guys were making me sing how he loves me. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves me. And I grew up where I just didn't, I thought that was making fun of me. He didn't really love me like that. I thought, and you don't write this on a quiz. I just thought God thought I was a disappointment. I believe that. And the reality is I hated singing that song. And then we had kids. And I remember when we had a little girl, I would take the 5 a.m. shift to let my wife sleep. And I was holding that baby. I was looking down at her. And I remember as I was looking at her, suddenly I felt this sharp pain in my chest. And I'm sitting there like, oh my, like, what is this? I was like, this is love for you. And I instantly felt the limitations of language. Like it struck me in a second, like I would do anything for you. I would, I would give, like, I'll give my life for you. Seems like, of course I would. And I just thought, this is such an overwhelming feeling. And then I thought, I wish I could communicate this to you. I wish there was some way to let you know what your dad is feeling right now, that I love you so much. This is unbelievable, this experience. I couldn't write a poem or a song or a million songs that could communicate to you what's in my heart. And you wouldn't even understand it anyway, because you're a baby, but the reality is it's blowing my mind. You've done nothing for me. You've been an absorption of wealth. And yet, I cherish you like crazy. And I remember as soon as I felt that, it was like the Spirit of the Lord moved in and said, Ben, do you think you're a better dad than me? You think you, think you love your daughter more than I love my kids? And I had to repent of an unbiblically low view of the love of God. Let me tell you something. If you decided to hate me, let's say that's your goal for 2019. Oh, just oh, destroy Ben Stewart. That's my goal. All right. Let me tell you how to do it. Let me tell you the worst possible thing you could do to me. Right? The most evil thing you could do is to convince my two daughters for a second that I don't love them. 
You lean down and look into their little faces and tell them, you know, you're a bit of a hassle to your dad. You're a disappointment. You know, you, you just kind of take up his time and you've not in any way fulfilled what his hopes were for you. And he doesn't really love you. He really doesn't care. He'd be better off if you left. You whisper craziness like that to my daughter. You will enact all manner of rage inside of me. You really want to hate me? You convince my children that I don't love them. And that's what the enemy has done to so many of you. And the way he does it is by attacking your dad and attacking that father wound. And so when you think of the fatherhood of God, you think of the incomplete picture of your dad rather than the perfect picture of your God. And so your enemy knows that if he can get you to distrust the father heart of God, a million sins are launched by that lie. So he's going to lean down and whisper into your face, God's not really looking out for you. God doesn't really love you. You're the exception. Yeah, Jesus loves everybody, but if they all really knew, Jesus would be like, wow, you're a little bit more complicated than I wanted to get into. You're never going to amount to anything. You'll never accomplish what your father's put in front of you. You're not what you are. You're a disappointment. He will keep doing that to you, and you have to make war on that lie. Make war on it. And for so many of us, man, my hope for you this weekend is you will repent from an unbiblically low view of the love of God. My beloved brothers, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above from your father in whom there is no shadow or shifting due to change of his own will because he wanted to. He brought you forth. James uses birthing imagery again. He made a decision gladly to come get you to dive into the darkness and pull out you and said, I want you to be mine. He loves you. And when you realize you're surrounded by the love of God, the sacrificial love of Jesus that came chasing after you, that reckless love that went tearing through the mountains to get you, when you know you're loved by that, sin will begin to lose its allure. The things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. Do you see it? Fight. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you that you are aware of every one of our struggles. Just because it was nighttime or in the dark doesn't mean your view of us committing horrible things was obscured at all. You've seen it all. You know it all and you love us anyway while we were your enemies you came for us while we were sinners christ died for us for god so loved the world he gave his son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life god i believe there's men in here tonight that have never believed that they're like our brother who shared earlier they thought Being a Christian was going to church, being a good person, warming a pew, and they're realizing you need a personal relationship with that hero God who came for you. And I pray even now, God, there'd be some brothers in here who say yes to you for the first time. And then, God, there's others of us in here, and we know you. But we have bought the lie so many times that to really pursue life, we have to step away from the author of life. And I pray tonight that you're giving us clarity on how the enemy gets us. He comes after all of us. 
But you tell us in your word, flee youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, along with those who call out to God out of a pure heart. Thank you for surrounding us with a room full of people who want to call out to you out of a pure heart. Believing, maybe some of us for the first time, you're not here to condemn us. You embrace us. You want to see us win. You're cheering for us like a good dad who sees their child rise up and walk for the first time. You are celebrating that we are taking steps out of the dark into the light. And I pray, God, in the context of that safety, we would feel the freedom to look at our brothers and say, this is how the enemy gets me, but no longer. Will you stand with me? Will you fight with me? And I want to challenge some of you. The most Christian thing you'll do this weekend may not be sing another song. It may be find a godly, mature believer and say, hey, this is where the enemy gets me. Will you pray for me here? Will you ask me about it? Will you eliminate the moment with me? And I want to challenge you even now to pray. Who might that person be you could share with? Well, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, I just, I, I just wonder tonight if there's some people in here that would say, I'm in that first group, Ben. I'm in the group that wants to put my faith in Jesus, believe that the Father loves me and wants to adopt me as a child through the free grace of Jesus. I want to put my faith in him. I want to trust him. I just wonder if there's a, some people in here feeling that. And, and if that's you, with everyone's head down, eye closed, I just wonder if you could help me. Would you be willing to put a hand up? Could I see you? Anybody in here want to say yes to Jesus for the first time? I want to put my faith in him. Would you put a hand up so I can see you? Okay, I see you, brother. Fantastic. I wonder if there's some others of us in here that could say, you know what? I believe this is that I've been buying the lie, maybe some of us for years, maybe some of us for just a few days or months, that God really isn't looking out for me, that he isn't a loving dad, and I want to cast that lie out of my heart. Anybody in here feeling that? I want to confess to God that I believe it, that you are a good father, and I want you to heal that part of me. Anybody saying that's the prayer I'm praying tonight? Would you let me see you? Would you put a hand up? Anybody feeling that? Okay, I see that. Praise God, man. Thank you, Father, that you are calling us out of the dark into the light. Thank you that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God, for giving us the call to come out into the wilderness so you can speak tenderly to us and show us a better way. I pray for us, God, as we get into our groups later, as we talk to each other, we would feel that freedom to confess our sin one to another and pray for each other that we might be healed that some healing might happen in this space because you are God and you are good. And we thank you, Lord, for how you lead us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you, guys.